musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And before I introduce today's program, I want to first give you a little status report on where we are in regards to beginning the full release of an audio version of Leonard Picard's marvelous book, The Rose of Paracelsus. As you know, in podcast 609 last June, I podcast a three and a half hour introduction of parts of several chapters read by such people as Brother David Stendel Rost and Dr. Julie Holland. Well, our key producer, Kat Lakey, has just finished her summer's work in the Amazon and is now back on the road and recording more readings for our project. The other day, Leonard told me that Kat was in London and planning on meeting my old friend Amanda Fielding for a reading and may then be on to Marseille for a reading by one of the founders of the field of quantum gravity, Dr. Carlo Rabelli, who, after reading Leonard's book, wrote to him and offered to help, as have many other people. It's a big project, and I'm sure that you are going to be well pleased as these episodes come out later this year. Now, one of the reasons that I'm reminding you about Podcast 609 is that it is not only the longest podcast from here in the salon, it is also one that most definitely should be listened to more than once, as is today's podcast also, I should add. So assuming that you aren't hearing this until you're driving home from this year's Burning Man Festival, that means you still have a long road trip ahead of you. And the Rose Garden Podcast number 609 is going to help make the time fly for you. Ah yes, it's Burning Man time once again, and while I don't miss the expense and all of the preparation required for months ahead of time, and I don't miss that hours-long drive and wait to get onto the playa, but I sure do miss being there. One of the people who I know is there right now is today's featured speaker, Paul Stamets. In fact, the last thing that I heard from him last week was that he was deep in preparations to soon leave for the playa. And thinking about Paul and all of my other friends who are there right now makes it even more difficult to be sitting on the sidelines these days. However, uh, well, we can both put that out of our minds right now, at least for the next hour and a half, as we listen to the talk that Paul gave last March at the Convergence on Orcas Island. If we had all day here, I would take the next hour or so just to give you the headlines about Paul's amazing accomplishments. But since we are here together in the psychedelic salon, let me just put it this way. When I think of psychedelic chemicals, the first two names that come to my mind are Albert Hoffman and Sasha Shulgin. And when it comes to mushrooms, the first two names that come to my mind are R. Gordon Wasson and Paul Stamets. He's actually on that level. Unfortunately, in the first 60 seconds or so of Paul's talk, the sound is, uh, well, a little bit garbled. However, he changed microphones, and so it clears up in less than a minute. As you'll hear, Paul uses a lot of photos and graphics in his talk. However, with only a few exceptions, you should be able to easily follow his discussion without seeing the image itself. And there are a couple of uh, short videos that he also played. However, I left in the audio portion of them because they, they cover some information that I think you're going to find interesting. And I did try to find links to those video clips on the net to add to the program notes, but <laughs> there must be at least a thousand videos of Paul on YouTube, so I just gave up searching for it. 
However, I did screen capture a couple of images that I thought you might enjoy seeing, including the slide where Paul shows the stacking formula for microdosing psilocybin. And uh, I posted these images with the program notes for this podcast at psychedelicsalon.com. As you will now hear, it was my great pleasure to be able to introduce Paul that evening, and he requested that before we begin, that he would like to get the audience settled down and in the proper mood by first playing Grace Slick's recording of White Rabbit, which dates back to the days when her band was still called the Jefferson Airplane. Well, for what it's worth, White Rabbit has also been a very important song in my life. It got me through many long nights, and uh, so I knew right then that this was going to be a magical evening. And now, here is Grace Slick. Paul Stamets tonight now? <laughs> I, will, I will make this introduction mercifully brief. Uh, the first time I met Paul was 20 years ago, and he had just released a new book. It was at a conference like this, but about the third of this size. And I bought his book, but I was too shy to get him to autograph it. I was afraid to go up. He was such a huge person then, and such a big feature in this community. And then, 20 years later, he's done so much more And I get to introduce him. I can't believe it. (laughs) One of the biggest honors I've ever had. 
Now, the next time I met Paul or saw Paul was at a conference that has become known as the last great mushroom fest conference of the millennium. It was over Halloween, 1999. It was a, a big party at Brighton Bush. We hunted mushrooms and all and, and had a costume party. But the thing that I really remember most, it, Paul got together a, a dozen or more of his, his friends who were the top mycologists in the world. And there was a man there from Thailand. I don't remember his name, but he was, uh, he was very much deferred to, sort of like Albert Hoffman of the mycology field, you know. And so Paul introduced him as the world's leading mycologist. And he was, his English was his second language, and so he was very hesitant and all, but he smiled and he says, we all know that he's really the one that's the top mycologist in the world. And I thought, you know, when the top of your peer group says that about you, where else can you go? There really is nowhere else. Well, there is one other thing. You can become a cultural icon. Besides me, are there any Star Trek fans here? <laughs> I can't say I'm a Trekkie, but I've watched a lot of those episodes. And in the new season, Star Trek Discovery, the creators of the program actually came to Paul to help get some ideas and get started. And a lot of the storyline now are from ideas that Paul gave them. But one of the biggest ideas was he came up with the concept of an astro-mycologist. And so there's a, a character in, in there now who is an astro-mycologist. And guess what name they gave to that character? Paul Stamets. Can you believe it? So, so from being a cultural icon, the only place I can see for Paul to go up is to actually become an astromycologist. And I have no doubt he'll do it. So welcome, Paul. Well, thank you, Lorenzo, and thanks to all of you. Um, we did a number of conferences here on Orcas Island called the Mycomedia Conferences at Camp Orkila. And um, that was in the late um, 1970s, um, at a time when there was really a, a revolution um, in the interest in psilocybin mushrooms. Um, but before I jump into my, my immersion talk on psilocybin mushrooms, I want to uh, acknowledge um, the Salish indigenous peoples of this area, and uh, Paul Chayokin Wagner, um, respect to you. And respect to all your relations, all our relations, and all relations. Um, so, and I also want to um, pay respect to my most recent ancestor. Um, my my mother just died, and um, we were by her bedside the past several weeks, and my mother was an evangelical, charismatic Christian. She was a wonderful and kind lady. We were politically not on the same <laughs> side of the fence at all. She would watch Fox News a lot, and we would come over and say, Mom, watch Rachel Maddow. <laughs> um, but she was a kind and wonderful person, and she really believed in what we've been doing in the field of mycology and for the common good. And my mother was so sweet and she died 
a wonderful death. And she reached up to me, and she stroked my beard, and she asked me in the last day that she could speak, she said, am I dying? I said, yes, Mom, you're dying. You're dying with grace, dignity, and love. You've raised a wonderful family. You should be very proud of your life. You're a good person. You're a good woman. You're a good soul. And my brother Bill and I held her hands. And she gripped our hands tightly. And when she lost the ability to speak, she had this most wonderful, sweet, spiritual, sadly sweet smile. And she looked at under our eyes with blessedness. And it was a very, very precious moment. And so I'm dedicating my talk to my mother. Okay. Life moves on. But we rest literally on the shoulders of our ancestors. And what indigenous peoples and the First Nations have taught me, the importance of the seventh generation concept. More and more that I've delved into the science of mycology, and I see how important this field is, it brings home the concept that the consequences of our actions today reverberate downstream through the generations. And we should hear the calls of our descendants now calling from the future back to these times and asking us to wake up. Don't you see? Don't you know? Do you hear us? We are the voices of your descendants and your future. It is our time to make a paradigm shift. And so I want to bring you some elements of actionable solutions for the paradigm shift in this talk and in my talk tomorrow. It has been a wild, strange trip. And what a long, strange chip it's been to come to this moment in time. It's time for us to immerse into the microverse. And I ask you, are you on the bus or are you off the bus? It's time for the next quantum leap in human consciousness. So let's all get on the bus and get on to the paradigm shift. So... I'm going to be multitasking here. I need three arms. Um, So I'm going to talk about mushrooms, well, a lot more than just about mushrooms. But I think um, Linnea said it very well. We are an underground mycelial network of knowledge, and we surface in these conferences where the body intellect is coming from the fabric of nature. Each one of us are capsules of knowledge and experiences. We come together and we share become bigger, stronger, wiser, hopefully, and the body intellect of our culture increases. So looking at mushrooms, mushrooms are the fruit body of the mycelium. Typically, mushrooms come up and they're highly perishable. They disappear in a few days. But they surface from the mycelium that's been in existence for months, years, decades, even centuries before they suddenly flourish and produce a fruit body much analogous to an apple is to an apple tree, or more analogous to an apple is to the roots of an apple tree. So these underground networks are largely invisible, 
but they're surrounding us all the time. The mushrooms are beacons. And as we reach down and we find a mushroom, we have that eureka moment. But as we touch the mushrooms, we are touching into the portal, into an underground network of wisdom that we can tap into that knowledge and gain so much. So the mycelium is growing over seven days of Psilocybe cubensis. It grows, it forks, it diverges. Mycelial networks are, have become the largest organisms identified so far in the world. This is a 2,200-acre mycelial network in eastern Oregon. 2,200 acres. It was published in scientific literature. I hired an airplane. I flew down from Boeing Field down to eastern Oregon. One day, we saw these giant patches of dead trees. It's from a honey mushroom called Armillaria estoii. And it kills the trees. And so we could see these big barren patches of trees on the mountaintops. But we couldn't find this massive, massive colony. We went back disappointed. We look up in the scientific literature. We had the latitude and longitude correct. But we realized we were too low in elevation. So we flew back the next day. And we went over the same area. And then we spiraled up and up and up. And we got to about 14,500 feet. And... I looked out the window. I go, there it is. I see it. And I said, but I think I'm going to faint. And the pilot said, me too. <laughs> I said, well, let me get a photograph first because you go from sea level to 14,500 feet, you know, in 45 minutes, you know, you, you, you have hypoxia. So I was able to take this photograph, which I think is the, big, the best photograph anyone's taken of the largest organism in the world. It's a mycelial mat. And yet there's only one cell wall thick. You have epidermal layers that protect you from infection. The mycelium only has one cell wall. On the other side of that cell wall are hundreds of millions of, of microorganisms per gram, and many of which want to consume the mycelium. How is it possible that the largest organism in the world is a mycelial mat, one cell wall thick, buried into the ground, surrounded by all these potential pathogens, and yet achieve such, such, such a mass? It's because there's this constant bioelectric communication with this ecosystem, it's, it's responsive because of epigenesis, which I'll talk about later. It's reactive. It has a memory, a genetic memory of encounters with individuals that help or try to harm it. It has a memory that it can utilize for future expansion. The mycelium, after it grows to whatever size, has enough nutrition, is then triggered into primordial formation. Mushroom formation typically occurs in response to four environmental factors. A sudden influx of water, we all know that, rain. When you have water, you have evaporative cooling, so you have lowering of temperature. And then as the mycelium wicks up, because it has moisture on near the surface, then it exhales carbon dioxide, inhales oxygen, so that's the third one, and then it's exposed to light. That's very surprising to most people. 99% plus of mushrooms that are out there that we grow or know how to grow need light in order for the mushrooms to form from the mycelium. And so these are the primordia that are forming from the mycelium. This is a mycelial mat before light exposure, after light exposure. Little hyphal aggregates are forming. What it looks like in a petri dish is this. These are little baby mushrooms that are forming. Very, very quickly, the mushrooms begin to enlarge. This is, this is an extraordinarily explosive growth. Think of Jack and the Beanstalk. If you were standing here in real time, it would be surging right past you. Millions and millions of cells are subdividing. It very, very quickly uh, expands and surfaces from the mycelium. Interestingly, this is a big part of our research, is blue light is critically important for the formation of mushrooms. 
And we see down to about 400 nanometers. And I'll talk about this in my bee research tomorrow. Uh, the mycelium is sensitive way into the ultraviolet spectra beyond what we can see. And then the blue light stimulates the primordial of the form. And with psilocybin mushrooms, the majority of which blue light stimulates psilocybin and psilocin production, the absence of which the mycelium is not producing any psilocybin or psilocin. So especially with the wood decomposer, the wood decomposing psilocybin mushrooms, you can analyze the mycelium. If it's not been exposed to light, there's no detectable psilocybin. But once there is even a flash of light, you know, very, very temporary amount of light exposure, then psilocybin production is triggered. So very quickly, that's a small primordium of Psilocybe cubensis, and very quickly it can go from this stage to this stage in about five days. So an extraordinarily rapid, explosive growth. And so the mushrooms actually do not have a good immune system. They're not designed to have a good immune system. The mycelium is. It has to navigate through a hostile microbial environment, but the mushrooms are fleshy. Their in- intention is to be discovered by microvores, animals, and insects to be consumed, to spread their spores. So the mushrooms are the proverbial tip of the mycelial iceberg, but the mycelium is the immune system of the mushroom. So here is a rushula mushroom. It's growing in the old-growth forest in a meadow. It's past its prime. A few days earlier, it would have been edible. And then I come back a few days later, and it's rotting, and mycelium is growing from it. Lots of other organisms are growing on it. And then the mycelium then, then goes underground. In a single cubic inch of soil, there can be more than eight miles of mycelium. Think of that, eight miles of mycelium in a cubic inch. My foot is covering about 300 miles of mycelium. So as the mycelium grows, how is it possible that it's able to navigate through these microbially dense and hostile environments? It's because it's producing extracellular metabolites. And these extracellular metabolites are exquisitely designed and extraordinarily complex in their, extra, in their constituents. But they, they produce antibiotics that pre-selectively uh, um, favors the bacterial and the microbiome that gives rise and supports the plants that grow to create the, uh, the canopy uh, above ground of plant material that eventually will produce uh, debris fields and detritus that will feed the mycelium. So they're determinately interested in the survival of the plant communities that will protect their progeny by producing debris fields that will feed the mycelium to grow. So they have a vision into the future, a vision of their destiny of the ecosystem that will support the microdiversity and the biodiversity of the ecosystem, and this is what they are truly guardians of, of the environment. I spent many years in the scanning electron microscopist. This is some of my electron micrographs, and this is a, 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 a root of a matataki mushroom, um, and this is out of a Douglas fir, and the mycelium there is surfacing. So a friend of mine, Patrick Kiki, uh, when he produced these time-lapse images um, of the mycelium, these are nuclei streaming through the mycelium. There's hundreds of nuclei that are streaming through, and before he produced these movies, we didn't have a good glimpse of this. This is sped up over about eight hours. In a few seconds, notice all the nuclei are not going in one direction. The majority of them are, but they stream... And in the breadth of my arms spread out, we've done the calculation, there can literally be trillions and trillions of end branchings of tips. So as the tips of the mycelium grow out, they forage, they encounter new microbes, new microbiomes. They are like little scientists at the tips of those with multiple nuclei. 
And if they encounter something novel or, or adversarial, they have a, because of epigenesis, they have a defense response. And if these two little scientific nuclei decide to figure out a new enzyme or antibiotic or new defense strategy, what happens? Well, they capitalize on that, and the mycelium forages out into that ecosystem now and then is able to expand. And then the, because of that solution that it genetically was able to encode that's new, because of epigenesis, then the knowledge then transfers back into the mother mycelium. So remote from a point of contact, the mycelium become educated constantly from trillions of end branches all around that forages into the ecosystem. Now, I realized, and because of my work on scanning electron microscopy in the 1970s, mycelium looked an awful like, a lot like neurons. And then with the invention of the computer internet, it also shared the same archetype of that of mycelium and neurons. And then looking at the birth of the universe, 13.8 billion years ago was the Big Bang. And the universe was formed. And then from the Max Planck Laboratory, when I saw this, I was just fascinated. This is a parsec, 3.26 light years, 19 trillion miles. We'll go back and the largest conceived expanse of the universe that can be calculated and visualized by computers, and it conforms also to the same archetype formed by the mycelium, by neurons, by the computer internet. This is the way. This is the way of existence. This is the way of being. And I suggest to you, many, and my mother and I would have these conversations, and I'd say, Mom, you believe in God? Oh, yes, dear, I believe in God. And you believe that humans' perception of God is imperfect. And she goes, yes. Well, that means our, our perception of the concept of God is imperfect. We'll be inadequate to the task of understanding the enormity of the concept of God. Now, I am not religious, but I am spiritual. And I ask you to contemplate the concept, is this the face of God? We exist in a molecular universe, a network of molecules. We coalesce to become human beings. We're all truly built of stardust. We dismantle, we demolecularize, we reform, we reconstitute into a different form of existence. But we're a continuum of these molecules as we form throughout the galaxy. We go out and look at the formation of dark matter as it's conceptualized these are galaxies, and this is a representation from the, from the Hubble telescope. There's 180,000 galaxies in this deep field view, but the organization of dark matter also conforms to, to the archetype shared by that of the mycelium neurons, the computer internet. So I want to take you through a course of evolution, and some of this knowledge has only come to, to light in the past few years. This is something that, from my experiences in tripping on mushrooms, I saw. I had the vision. Many of you also have had the same vision. What is amazing to me is that the scientific discoveries of late is reinforcing that which so many of what indigenous peoples have also uh, gestaltically knew, experientially knew. They may not have the same technology words, are the same scientific experiments, but empirically, I think we're all on the same page.
So we go to the formation of the earth 4.5 billion years ago. Many of you not, may not know that the earth had a huge collision at its formation 4.5 billion years ago. An asteroid, a planetoid called a Martian-like planet, uh, which is called Theia, crashed into the earth and then the debris fields then coalesced and the moon formed. Many astrobiologists believe the formation of the moon is the, it was the trigger in the formation of life because as we formed oceans, then we had tidal pools. We had tidal pools, we had fluctuation in the tides, we had the interface environments, and that interface of wet and dry and wet and dry became an epigenetically rich environment for the organisms to become uh, to form. So we go to 4.5 billion years ago to 3.8 billion years ago, and that is from the scientific method, the last universal common ancestor, Luca. Oh, hell, Luca! Ah, sorry. Um, if, if you haven't seen Dr. Strangelove, you really don't know what I was doing there, but those of you who have seen Dr. Strangelove, you'll, you'll pick up on that. But it was a single-celled organism. It's the last common uh, ancestor. So when did multicellular organisms uh, form? Well, we don't know for sure, but we have evidence now that 2.4 billion years ago, the first evidence of a multicellular organism was discovered uh, just a few years ago in 2017 in lava in South Africa, and it is that of mycelium. 2.4 billion years ago, the first multicellular organism was fungal mycelium. So we advance forward, and 420 million years ago, this organism existed called Prototaxides. Now, Prototaxides was very controversial, first found in, I think, 1857, and no one really could figure it out. It was before uh, vascular plants, before trees, before flying insects. The tallest organisms on land were ferns. Uh, so for, it was a big controversy. What was this thing? It was like 35 feet long, lying down about three feet, you know, broad. And so it was a big mystery until Dr. Kevin Boyce uh, published in the Journal of Geology and uh, about 10 years ago, finally deciphered what Prototaxides was. Prototaxides, 420 million years ago, the tallest organism on Earth was a giant fungus. Towering in this artist's description by Francis Huber, over 30 feet in height, is the tallest organism on land, of course, because back then there was a lot more lightning and, and, and storms. It would electromagnetically attract lightning strikes. Again, that stimulus of electricity, we know also would stimulate epigenesis. These were fertile fungi that when they would rot, they would select the microbiomes, they become cavity environments. They would also stimulate another branch of evolution. We go forward to 250 million years ago and we have a giant cataclysmic event, a major extinction event at the PT boundary, the Permian-Triassic boundary. Now, there's three competing theories, an asteroid impact, methane hydrate bursts from the ocean, um, or volcanoes in Eurasia. They're not mutually exclusive. The asteroid impact could have created the earthquakes that have opened up the fissures of methane hydrate that burst into the atmosphere, and then the volcanoes could have burst, but the earth became shrouded in dust. And we actually have a very good geological record 
This is why the flat earthers, the, the people who are denials, uh, who deny evolution, have a real problem here because we can see in the fossil record, uh, you know, the clear division in these barriers when over 90% approximately, depending on the flora and the fauna you're looking at, uh, the species became extinct. The earth became darkened, shrouded in dust, and then fungi took over. In fact, they've been identified a fungus that was predominant called Reduvia sporonides. And Reduvia sporonides in the fossil record was a predominant fungus associated with forest lands uh, that gobbled up the forest debris. And so we steer forward to the time of Gondwana land and, then, and in Pangaea. And then we had continents form, we had continental drift, and then Gondwana land formed and the continents became as they were true. I still remember when I was in the third grade, I raised my hand in geology class. I said, teacher, it looks like this, like a puzzle. You could just all put them together. She goes, no, that's a coincidence, you know. <laughs> I think we should listen to children more often, eh? They can see the obvious. So we go forward now, you know, from Gondwana land 140 million years ago to 110 million years ago, the oldest representation, putatively, of a mushroom ever found. Uh, in a sediment layer in Brazil, mushrooms are very soft, so the fact that it was mineralized to form a fossil is amazing. But there is a mushroom 110 million years ago. Mushrooms had their form well before we had ours. These are ancestral organisms. These are not just miscellaneous little fungi growing on the ground. These are elders. These are ancient individuals. These are bastions of knowledge, encyclopedic in their history of evolution. So we advance forward to 65 million years ago, and we have another visitor from outer space. We know about this one for sure. 65 million years ago, above the Yucatan, it strikes huge impact. The earth becomes shrouded in dust, and we have another massive extinction event. Dinosaurs became extinct. Yay! Um, <laughs> after watching Jurassic Park, I'm really glad dinosaurs became extinct. And the earth became shrouded in dust, and then fungi re-inherited the earth. Those organisms that paired with fungi tend to survive. Our ancestors were voles, little mole-like creatures who were eating subterranean fungi, and they were protected from the impact. But because of the fungal networks, they were able to have food. And some of the explorations I've done with psilocybin mushrooms and uh, finding them in the woodland sandy areas, I found burrows of, uh, where little moles have gone through and, and the, the, the tunnels uh, and, and, these, and the little mole colonies are, are, are covered with corridors of mycelium. And like, whoa, of course, they're, they're eating roots and things like that and they're carrying debris and so the mycelium is running and there are air, air corridors also and moisture and the rodents are pooping in there. So it makes really good sense that these rodents then would pair with fungi and it would be a mutualistic relationship. So we go forward into the current time. <coughs> and then I was ex really interested in how many primates consumed mushrooms. That was a logical question to ask. Humans consume them. And so I found this article came out of Australia, the governor of Australia. And it turns out that 22 primates consume mushrooms. 23, when you add humans, were primates. Think of that. 23 primates consume mushrooms. That speaks to a long ancestry of knowledge, looking at the divergence of primates 
that the knowledge of primates and mushrooms goes back a long, long time. The Golgi monkey of Brazil and the Amazon consumes more than 12 times its body weight you know, of mushrooms. Now, Americans consume about 2 kilograms per year, less than 3% of our body weight. But these monkeys know which mushrooms are edible, which ones are poisonous. And think of that. It's natural for us and for the people who are uneducated about mushrooms to fear mushrooms because some mushrooms can feed you, some can kill you, some can get you high, some can send you on a spiritual journey. But they only come up and pop out of the land and the landscape for four or five days and they disappear. Our, our impression and our encounters with animals and plants are much longer in, their, in our viewscape. And so we build up a knowledge of familiarity and that which is familiar that we understand and we can use, we can pass that knowledge down. But mushrooms that are so potent, that can do all these different things and then disappear, it's the cognoscente of indigenous cultures. The ones, the wise elders who knew which ones were good and which ones would kill you or could be useful for other purposes. That knowledge was eclectic. So looking at primate evolution, an extraordinary thing happened about two million years ago. There was a sudden doubling to tripling of the human cranium. Now, Homo sapiens appeared about 200,000 years ago. Now, how did this happen and why? Well, it was also a time of rapid climate change. And so Homo erectus and Neanderthals migrated into Europe well before Homo sapiens. There was two sort of quote-unquote invasions of Homo sapiens into Europe. The first one did not work out well. Uh, The second one happened about 40,000 years ago. But within 4,000 years of contact, Homo sapiens made Neanderthals extinct. Homo erectus became extinct before that. So with the larger brains, we had the ability of out-competing primate competitors, and the Neanderthals became extinct. I did 23 meat tests. I'm 2.9% Neanderthal, you know. (laughs) It's a good thing to know. Um, So we were interbreeding with other primates. You know, we all get horny, so it's just, you know, don't have an available mate. They're willing and able, so whatever. So, but as we march forward now, there's an extraordinary concept that Terence McKenna and Dennis McKenna presented. And Terence and I became very good friends, especially the last five years of his life. We started making fun of himself. I enjoyed that. People took him way too seriously, and he thought so also. But they came up with a stoned ape theory. And the stoned ape theory, this is from Louis Schwartzberg and I are doing a film together. It's coming out soon. And the hypothesis was of Terence and Dennis is that their primate ancestors came out of the canopy. They went across the savanna because of uh, climate change. And most primates eat grub, eat larvae. Well, you're starving. You're going across the plain. You find something growing on a dung. It looks edible, and you eat it. And you, after 20 minutes, you are, oh, my God. (laughs) And... And you'd be sharing that with your clan, with your family. Now you have epigenesis, you have neurogenesis, you have this shared spiritual experience. It's something that may well have triggered the expansion of the human brain. Now, skeptics are out there, and I love skeptics, but let's look at this circumstantially. 
you know, the majority of primates eat grub. Fly larvae grow in mushrooms. You're going across the savannah with your clan, you're hungry, you're tracking animals. What do you look for? Scat, poop, tracks. You find hippopotamus, dung, you know, deer dung, whatever. You find these mushrooms coming out of them. You're hungry. They have grub in them. You eat them. You share them. You suddenly have this amazing spiritual experience, the floodgates of the heavens, your visual information, and everything is enhanced. Well, that'd be a shared community experience. And it wouldn't happen one time. It wouldn't happen ten times. It happened millions upon millions upon millions of times over millions of years. Circumstantially, you cannot deny the probability that the constant ingestion of magic mushrooms would have an impact in the evolution of human consciousness. And I think there's a lot of merit to that, especially recently. So Psilocybe cubensis is the most prolific, large psilocybin mushroom growing on dung. Elephant, hippopotamus, zebra, horse, buffalo, cow. And a other species that grows right with it is Pinellus uh, cyanescens. They're over there. Um, also known as Coplandia cyanescens. Sorry, my laser didn't fit. Um, and both of these rot very, very quickly with fly larvae. So they, they call it the stoned ape hypothesis. Now, the pro-drug psilocybin, psilocybin actually doesn't get you high, it's a pro-drug, a dephosphorylase into psilocin, which then activates uh, serotonin receptors, stimulating neurogenesis, improving visual acuity and hearing. Um, so they call it a hypothesis, but I disagree with them. It's not a, it's, it's, it's not, not a theory. It, they call it a theory. It's not a theory. It's a hypothesis. A hypothesis is an educated guess to explain an observable phenomenon. A theory is a hypothesis that's been actually tested by science and factually supported. So it is a hypothesis, not a theory, and it needs to be supported by more scientific studies. However, there are been studies, and some of the researchers are in this room, and I'd like to acknowledge Charlie Grobe um, in particular is here, and, um, and um, Catherine, um, I don't remember your last name, sorry, but, um, and then and articles came out on the psilocybin stimulating neurogenesis in the hippocampus, and the extinction of fear conditioning. Well, that's interesting. Because you're, you're with your clan, you're a primate, you're fighting off saber-toothed tigers, you've you're been wiped out by saber-toothed tigers or cave bears, you can't get into the cave, and you have a fear of bears, you're freezing in the wintertime. You then take magic mushrooms, you heal, and you go, I know how to do this. And you have the extinction of the fear response. You're over, able to overcome your fear. Well, it turns out that low doses of psilocybin in this study uh, facilitated an extinction of the fear response, conditioned fear response, far better than that of high doses. So that's very, very interesting. So psilocybin, we know, stimulates neurogenesis. So we can conclude from this well, psilocybin induces courage and kindness. Well, those are leadership skills, folks. <laughs> and I know of many leaders in this world right now that could really benefit all of us as they start tripping on psilocybin mushrooms.
And since this is going out to the web, and no doubt the government is watching this, please take note, okay? So that means we become better citizens, more productive citizens. So I think this is really important for us to then look at our society and the health of our, the, men, the mental health of our society as a whole. So an extraordinary connectogram, and bless you, Nancy Reagan, but this is, this is your mushrooms, this is your brain not on mushrooms, and this is your brain on mushrooms. <laughs> Which brain do you think is going to be better facing the challenges of today? Well... Obviously, many neural connections, lots of better ideas, better reaction times, etc. So let's look at the history of the use of mushrooms by humans. This is a, the first image you're going to see is the actual pictograph from northern Algeria 7,000 years ago of what's called the Bee Man Shaman. Now, mushrooms were banned from beer in the uh, Bavarian Beer Purity Act of 1516. So here is, that's the original pictograph in the cave. And then Kat McKenna, Kat Harrison, um, and a friend of mine, Jonathan Meter, redrew this, and that's true to form. And this was consistent, or is consistent, even today, with putting magic mushrooms into honey. So the idea way back then, because mushrooms would rot so quickly, you put them in the honey, you could preserve them, and that could lead to psychoactive meads. And a good friend of mine, uh, George Walker, part of the Merry Pranksters, and I'm a Merry Prankster. I, 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 I've been on the bus. Uh, Ken Kesey and I were friends. And actually, uh, Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters sent me a plaque saying, Paul, you're a Merry Prankster. And they all signed it. Um, so that may tell you a lot. Um, <laughs> but the idea, but he was telling me that, yeah, back, back in the 60s, they put magic mushrooms into, into honey and they let it ferment like for two weeks and it all foamed up, you know? And I said, and then they ate it. I go, you're kidding. You know, how was it? He goes, great. <laughs> you know, so, so anyhow, those little merry prankster experiments are still reverberate today. But the concept of the magical meads is important because the Bavarian Beer Act, largely pushed by the Catholic Church, wanted to dismantle pagan uh, European religions. And they restricted it only to be able to use uh, yeast and hops um, and, and banned henbane uh, and mushrooms specifically mentioned, and they could not men- they use it. So um, that, I think, is a struggle between polytheism and monotheism. And the churches, because of the institutions they created and centralized control of money and power, uh, went on an ex- extermination campaign against indigenous European peoples as well. So in Mesoamerica, in the Pacific slopes of Guatemala, are these mushroom stones. There's about 200 of them known in the world that were associated, we think, like the coat of arms of a family, of a sacred mushroom patch, maybe to note uh, to invoke rain because rain was so important in Mesoamerica. Um, and that's where mushrooms will come up and help them, you know, uh, experience magic mushrooms in their ceremonies. And I'm really super honored that I am now the custodian of 23 of these Mesoamerican Mayan mushroom stones that I have acquired over 40 years. Several of them given to me by estates before they went up on auction because my stated intention is to return them to the Mayan people and the Mayan culture. 
And I just heard this past week of a Mayan uh, uh, indigenous uh, per people museum being constructed. And so I've made my first reaching out to them saying, I want to return these Mayan mushroom stones to the indigenous people of Guatemala. However, I also been warned by two people associated with the Guatemalan government not to return them because there's so much corruption inside the Guatemalan government that they'd likely just be sold again. And so it ha if I give them back, they have to be protected. But this is really important to me. Um, I had them up on a mantle, but I'm so worried if it's an earthquake that fall and break. <laughs> you know, 2,000-year-old mushroom stones. The one in the center is 2,500 years old. And, um, and so I didn't want them to break on my watch. And so a shaman came over, and, and I had a long see mushroom stone. He said, yes, and I have them all in these boxes with bubble wrap around them. And he goes, they don't like it there, Paul. <laughs> And so I didn't want to stand them up because they'd fall down. So I laid them down and I made this arc, this circle, this mandala. And then I'm walking by and I look at them and I go, oh my gosh, I have all these Mayan elders, the lineage of Mayan uh, mushroom, you know, shamans. And so this is what I walk by every day going in and out of my bedroom. I feel the elders of the Mayan mushroom shamans supporting me in my research and I hold this responsibility sacredly and it is my full intention to return it to a safe place in Guatemala where they can be returned to the Mayan people under the right conditions but it's my job and my duty to protect them and I've had thankfully several indigenous shamans tell me you are the one to protect them in this lifetime and so So, Life Magazine, 1957, May 13th, in the middle of the Cold War, you know, the front page. R. Gordon and Valentina Wasson uh, published an article called Seeking the Magic Mushroom. Life Magazine uh, coined the term, the elders, uh, the editors coined the term magic mushrooms. Um, the Wasson said, we'll write this article, but you cannot change anything in it. And so they wrote this amazing article with a complete field guide of how to identify them. Um, Maria Sabina is, is featured here, and there's a Mazatec mushroom ceremony. There's R. Gordon Wasson with a mushroom stone. So it's very interesting because when Maria Sabina was given R. Gordon Wasson philosophy, I think, Sari lessons, well, look how she's presenting it. And there's my brother John holding a mushroom, and there, there is uh, uh, Demeter giving Persephone a mushroom in Greece. 500 years uh, BCE, you know, basically BC. And, but the mushrooms are presented not like here, take these mushrooms. No, it's presente. Look, this is a sacrament. Respect it. You know, and I think that gesture of importance saying, I'm giving to this with intention and respect. This is important. And that gesture, I think, crosses, it's not that someone taught people to do this. This is something that you just know is important to do. So my brother John it was, is a huge influence in my life. I grew up in a small town in Ohio. He went to Yale. And I'm the youngest one in my family. And when I was 14 years old, my brother John was already a sophomore in Yale. And he brought back this book during vacation. And it's called Altered States of Consciousness. And my brother John was totally into, into mushrooms. He went to Mexico and Colombia 
eight magic mushrooms came back and I go, oh my gosh, you know, I was so excited about my brother John and learning. I was a little bit too excited for him, a little worried about me. But I said, John, can I borrow your book? And he said, sure. And I said, but I need, I'm going back to Yale, but you know, two weeks. So I give it back for, for my class. And so I brought my brother John's book and had it and I voraciously read it. And my best friend, Ryan Snyder was, was all, you know, hanging with me and Ryan and I would share a lot of things and he saw the book and he wanted to read it. And I had kind of gone through it enough, and, and I said, well, Ryan, I'll, I'll let it, lend it to you for a few days, but you have to give it back to me. And I said, Ryan, no problem. So Ryan borrows the book, and, and then um, he doesn't return it. And I go, well, my brother's going back to Yale. He wants his book. And Ryan kind of avoided the subject. Oh, that's weird. I see him a few days later. I said, Ryan, my brother needs his book. He's going back. He's asking me for it. He lent it to me. It's important to him. And Ryan, like, you know, hesitated. And finally, it was like the third time, I said, Ryan... I need that book back. My brother's all over me. Give me the book back. And Ryan sheepishly looked at me and said, I can't. And I said, why not? He says, my dad discovered it and burned it. I said, your dad burned my book? My brother's book? And I, I couldn't believe it. And, uh, of course, I was very apologetic to my brother. who was extremely disappointed, like, I'll never lend you anything again. You know, um, but then I thought, you know, wait a second. If, if this book had knowledge in it about use of mushrooms and hypnosis and, and you know, um, getting high, if this book had such potent knowledge in it that inspired Ryan's father to feel so threatened to burn it, I think I found a subject I wanted to explore. <laughs> so I was always trying to impress my brother, John. You know, he was the alpha older brother. And I admired him enormously. And so I, John kept on saying, well, Paul, your science is interesting. And John and I had all these trips together. And we came up with the phrase, a family that trips together stays together. <sighs> um, so John and I would, would trip a lot together in, in the mountains and great set and settings, you know, under volcanoes and cascading waterfalls and glaciers and, and had amazing times. And, but John goes, well, Paul, you, you know, you need to, be serious, a serious scientist, if you're going to really impress me, you know, and basically he said that in so many words. And so I was appointed by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, uh, as an invention ambassador. I went through about two weeks of, uh, of, of a vetting process, a gauntlet of other scientists, and they wanted to find inventors and scientists who could communicate science and inspire people in the public. So it was an extraordinary vetting process, and I, I made it through. And there were seven of us that were appointed as, as invention ambassadors, including the, one of my, the other person in my class of seven, uh, invented digital photography. Um, and so it was a hugely prestigious achievement for me. I got really excited. And um, so I, I, I've been vetted, and I got the letter. And I go, okay, John, <laughs> I'm going to show you, right? And so I, I got the letter, and I really excited and I, so I called my brother and said you know and the phone didn't answer and I, I, I was so excited to say I've been vetted by the most prestigious scientific organization in the world and I called and I called and he didn't answer and he didn't answer because that night he had a heart attack and died and so uh, John was enormously influential in my life he was a well known photographer in Seattle he, many people in Seattle know, know of him and his career there at the University of Washington School of Architecture um, so, anyhow, um, another person enormously contributed to my life, as well as these individuals, and this is Dr. Michael Bugue, 
uh, in the upper left, Dr. Alexander Smith in the right, Dr. Daniel Stuntz, University of Washington, lower left, and Catherine Skates from Post Falls, Idaho, on the lower right. Well, I met these mycologists, and these are some of the most prestigious uh, mycologists in the world, um, Alexander Smith being the, the father of American mycology, Daniel Stuntz, the most premier mycologist on the West Coast of North America. And they sort of adopted me when I was about 19 years of age when I first approached them because my interest in psilocybin mushrooms. I spent a lot of time in the University of Washington library studying uh, and uh, gathering and writing taxonomic keys trying to figure out the taxonomy of psilocybin mushrooms. And it was extraordinary that they took me under the wing because two of them were really conservative politically, and this is what I look like. <laughs> Your suspicions are now confirmed. <laughs> so that then ended up uh, Michael Bugue, the, the guy with a the basket there in the upper left, he ended up getting a DEA license, a Drug Enforcement Administration license for possession of psilocybin and cultivation. I went to the Evergreen State College. Um, we got an, a psilocybin uh, license, and so I was able to grow and possess psilocybin mushrooms at the Evergreen State College. I figured everyone who approached me was a DEA agent. <laughs> I came up with a mantra long ago, still abide by it, nature provides, I don't. Um, and I, I don't provide magic mushrooms to people for, for lots of reasons, but one of my primary reasons is I'm responsible for that person's trip. If I just give somebody psilocybin mushrooms and they go away and they have a bad trip, wow, that was really irresponsible of me. You know, if you're going to sit with somebody, you know, that, that's cool, but I'm not going to take on somebody else's karma. I'm not a therapist. You know, so I, I restricted myself. Self-discipline, no one ever told me, um, but I never got in trouble with the DEA or the government because I just can't be, be corrupted. You, you know, you, I, I just won't go there. But we launched on an amazing tour of the, of the West Coast of North America. The Dr. Gastan Guzman, Gary Menzer, um, there's Stephen Pollack, there's myself with the dark glasses, and uh, Dale Leslie. Now, Michael Bugue ended up having three students, Jonathan Ott, Jeremy Bugood, and myself. Between the three of us, I think we've written 17 books. Um, extraordinary. He's such a nerdy guy. I love him. But he ended up getting the DEA license because he wrote the protocol for analyzing um, psilocybin and separating them from other dimethyltryptamines. He was called in to, uh, as a defense witness, uh, getting people out of jail or out of the, uh, not being convicted because the DEA's protocols were imperfect. Mike wrote the, the correct protocols, then submitted for a DEA license, and then shepherded us. And then Jonathan Ott, many of you know who he is. He's a legend. And then... Terrence McKenna, Andy Weil, Gary Menser, and Stephen Pollock, four great psychonauts that were involved. And Lorenzo mentioned the fantastic Millennium Mushroom Conference with Sasha Shulgin. You know, Andy Wiles there, Sasha Shulgin, Gary, Men uh, Gary Linkoff, um, Satit Taitakun, my friend from Thailand, uh, David Aurora, etc. And this led to a whole bunch of psychoactive mushroom conferences. A whole bunch of books were coming out in the 70s. Uh, there's four of mine on the right, and I love the one, the hallucinating plants of North America. What every third grader should learn. Yeah. <laughs> Teach them while they're young. That was a one-off edition. <laughs> a hippie inherited uh, the, the Golden Guide, and he put out this, this thing, and then, then the PTAs of America got really upset, and they banned the book immediately. But that led to the Philosophy Commencement Scholarship Fund, as I called it. 
people in colleges all over the uh, United States and in Europe would grow psilocybe cubensis in jars and, and uh, in their closets. Uh, basically, they put money back into the local economy, pay for tuition, food, gas, you know. But it was just a, a massive uh, number of people growing in college campus dorms uh, psilocybin mushrooms. I went on to publish four different psilocybe mushrooms, psilocybe azurescens, liniformis variety maricana, cyanofibrillosa, uh, and psilocybe wileyi. So um, I have several other species that I have not yet published, um, but I'm going to show you a short uh, little clip. And I hesitated to, sh- to show this until last year or so. I'm 63 years of age. Um, I have no criminal record, uh, record yet. <laughs> Um, and after a while, I just don't give a shit, you know? So, um, anyhow, here you go. Greetings, and meet Psilocybe azurescens. Psilocybe azurescens is probably one of the most potent mushrooms in the world. It contains psilocybin and psilocin up to 2% of its dried mass. Now, think of that. 2% of the dried mass of this mushroom are psychoactive crystals. Why would a mushroom produce so much? We don't know but it certainly has attracted the interest of humans. The blueing that you see here is a bruising reaction. It's indicative of psilocin as it degrades. And the more blueing you see, the more psilocin there once was. Now, psilocybin dephosphorylates into psilocin, and when you ingest these mushrooms, psilocin becomes a serotonin antagonist. It means that the the psilocybin or the psilocin becomes a temporary neurotransmitter, opening up the floodgates of the senses. Now, this mushroom is sinuous. It's got a sinuous stem which means it bends back and forth, is bluing very, very strongly, and it has these uh, very uh, indicative spore color here on the annular zone. And the spore color is purple-brown, and the mushrooms are bluish. Those two features in combination pretty much de facto determines acelosophy. Now look how bodacious the rhizomorphs are at the base of the stem. This is a large psilocybe, by far the largest one that I know that grows on wood chips in the Pacific Northwest. It is now a popular one to have in your backyard. Uh, It's just fun. It's just naturalized in the woods here. Um, And this is a beautiful fruiting of them. And the psilocybes, um, uh, 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 many of the woodland psilocybes have this uh, chestnut brown to caramel color. Uh, This one is unique in that it's got these umbos, and it's a broad umbo. And the cap is very circular. The bruising reactions, just from impact of rain, perhaps. Um, This mushroom is one of the most fascinating and interesting ones to grow. Those who uh, choose to partake of this mushroom should be warned. These are exceptionally potent, and oftentimes they can cause uh, temporary paralysis, loss of muscle control. So that is not a good thing. It seems that most people who boil this mushroom in hot water... Those symptoms seem to be alleviated. Uh, but this is a clearly a sacred species, and I love just personally touching it. This is not a mushroom that I, that I enjoy eating. Uh, it's almost too potent for me. And, um, but it is a species that I greatly admire. I love touching it. I love handling it. I love seeing it. And um, it's a great indicator of the habitat in my magical mushroom forest that is uh, very conducive to spiritual experiences. And this mushroom also grows on 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 this island here. So um, it grows all up and down the west coast now, uh, back and also in New England. It's been transported by many people to grow it in their backyards. Now, other species 
It's a fascinating philosophy, Beocystis, in the center there. Um, and Beocystis is really important uh, because of a, a compounds uh, that are analogs uh, to psilocybin and psilocin called Beocystin and Neurobeocystin. Now, I don't have time to tell you what I would love to dive deeply. I will with other researchers. But mark my words, pay attention to Beocystin. There is a very big developing story that I don't know of any other researchers who have discovered what we have discovered. So it's an extraordinary potential breakthrough, and time will tell. But Beocystin, uh, coming from philosophy of Beocystis, there's the norobeocystin and beocystin. There are be- beocystin is a methylated form of uh, psilocybin. Psilocybin de- uh, dephosphorylates into psilocin. So there's psilocybin beocystis, psilocybin cyanescens, psilocybin stuntii, psilocybin elenii. And you should be careful picking these, these psilocybin mushrooms because I found this collection on the right where the deadly Galerana adamnalis marginata is growing so close to psilocybin stuntii uh, that they're touching. Uh, and I was extremely concerned when I wrote my first book in 1979, Philosophy Mushrooms and Our Allies. Uh, and I put it in there because I was worried about people mistakenly identifying or grabbing deadly poisonous mushrooms and their enthusiasm for finding psilocybin mushrooms. And indeed, that has occurred. And a woman, a uh, young lady in, uh, uh, near Woodby, uh, uh, El, um, near Everett, Washington, uh, consumed gallerinas, uh, became extremely sick, and did not go to the hospital because the hospital physicians uh, had a reputation, as well known, of confiding with law enforcement. And kids that were tripping on mushrooms were taken to the hospital, and when they asked them what they had consumed and they gave the person asking them what they consumed, it wasn't a doctor alone. It was a doctor and a policeman. And they had bust them on the ha- hospital bed. She did not want to go to the hospital. As a result, she died. Uh, so un- that was an unfortunate um, uh, true story. Uh, Psilocybe semilanceata, uh, also Psilocybe pelliculosa. Semilanceata has a nipple on top. It grows in grasslands. Psilocybe pelliculosa is very common. It grows here also in Orcas Island. It's a wood chip psilocybe. And here is another little short video. Throughout the temperate regions of Europe and the Pacific Northwest, one of the most interesting psilocybes to collect is one that grows near ponds in the grass. And this this field has not had uh, cows on it for more than 10 years. So cows and sheep can help, but they're not necessary. And this is psilocybe semilonceta, the famed liberty cap. Um, It's exquisite little fruiting here. It's got a translucent striate margin. You can see the striations, they're actually the gills showing through the cap. And the cap also has a separable gelatinous pellicle. So here is one over here that we can look at. And as you tear the cap, there is a film that's clearly visible. And you can say, whoa, that's a really big one. That film stretches and then breaks. So these mushrooms have purple-brown spores, a separable gelatinous pellicle, and they typically have a sharp umbo or a nipple the very, very top of the cap. And this papilla, or nipple, is not always in every specimen, but it's quite characteristic of the species in general. So, Psilocybe semilanceata. Many people, when they pick semilanceata, they don't realize that the stem is so long. I 
think it's a mutualistic species with the rhizomes of grass, um, almost like a pseudo-mycorrhizal relationship, which means it's not obligatory, um, but it benefits from it. And the stems often are picked because there are, people don't realize that the stem length is way, way down. So be careful. Always try to get the base of the stem if you can. And this is the, the great thing about uh, knowing how to identify and harvest philosophy mushrooms is part of your journey. You go out on vision quests. You're looking for the philosophies. You have the eureka experience of encountering them. You know, you're discerning them from lookalikes. You're learning Latin binomials. You're with friends. It's like an Easter egg hunt or a magical mushroom Easter egg hunt. And um, then you journey. And so it's a continuum of experiences that brings you directly in contact as opposed to taking a pill in a clinic, in a hospital, you know, with, with doctors, with suits, and, you know, going down corridors. You know, it's a really different, you know, mental ecosystem when you're uh, collecting these mushrooms in, in the wild. So I want to, you know, the, a lot of you have seen this. I'm going to summarize some of the, the research from Johns Hopkins here. Um, and um, KPAC, is, uh, that, uh, Catherine mentioned this in her great talk uh, earlier, uh, the mystical-like experiences. 14 months later, uh, many people describe it as one of the significant experience, uh, spiritual experience of their life. It's similar to that and significance of the birth of their, of their children. I love this next study. 480,000 people surveyed, and psilocybin use was associated with 27, this is with prisoners, HHS, and did a survey to see what their drug use was associated with their criminal activity in history, and those people who used psilocybin mushrooms had a 27% decrease odds of past year larceny or theft, a 22% decrease odds for property crime, 18% decrease odds for a violent crime. Well, doesn't that benefit society? Reducing court costs, making law enforcement able to focus better on, on other activities that are more deleterious to, uh, to, uh, to, to us, you know, as a community? Absolutely. Psilocybin mushrooms reduce crime. What Republican would oppose that, you know? I, don't answer the question. I mean, this no. <clears throat> I think this microphone is going dead, by the way. Okay, so, um, and then, interesting, uh, 1,266 community members aged between 16 to 70 showed a negative relationship between psychedelic use and intimate partner violence. Now, interestingly, it was primarily, I think, solely associated with men, that men who tripped on mushrooms were not violent to their partners. Statistically significant. Think of that. If you have a male partner who trips on mushrooms, you're going to have a happier relationship. Okay, I think we can live with that. So um, then uh, emotional responsiveness and depression, able to reconnect. The reset, reset mechanism is proposed uh, and then the disconnection of the amygdala so as part of the fear response. And the big news is, of course, using psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. Lots of studies are coming are involved in coming out with that. Psychiatric disorders, and this is the one I, I love the most. Those individuals who are associated with aging magic mushrooms had a decreased authoritarian political views. 
So if you trip on mushrooms, you're less likely to um, endorse dictators, you know. So the psilocybin mushrooms are a direct threat to dictatorial regimes. Okay. So I can think of, no, again, a lot of governments could uh, benefit or the people in those societies could benefit, and they would be a direct threat to the tyrannical regimes. Okay, um, I'm going to show uh, Louis Schwartzberg and I are coming up with a movie called Fantastic Fungi, The Magic Beneath um, y- uh, Your Feet. And this is from Johns Hopkins, um, with permission of the Johns Hopkins researchers and the patients. And I'm going to, uh, this is about five minutes long, and then we'll come to the conclusion of my talk. While we do so, can I get a better batteries in this? Because this is definitely going, going bad. Okay, so here we go. Oh, by the way, that mushroom stone there, I made it. I made 12 of these. Actually, Dusty, my wife and I, uh, my ex-wife and I made these. And, um, and so when I went to meet, meet Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins, uh, I couldn't believe they had the mushroom stone in there. I said, where'd you get that? Oh, someone gave it to us. So I was physically, uh, the physical embodiment of my work was present in over 700 psilocybin sessions, you know. So, so here we go. Anyone who's had one of those experiences in a country where it's not legal to have them is stuck in this position where something really precious and really giving a great gift to you is not understood by the culture at large and furthermore puts you or other people or and other people at risk of prosecution. And one response to that is to get angry uh, and to want to fight that. And another response to it is to say, we just got to explain to people what's going on here. And when people understand it, then there will be accommodation and respect. I've been diagnosed with prostate cancer. My diagnosis was so bad that uh, my product, it was, you know, they weren't giving me any, any chance whatsoever. My diagnosis was kidney cancer. Finding out that you may want to get your affairs in order. I first found out about the study when my oncologist gave me a pamphlet. He said, here's something that might be able to help you with the anxiety. And I was accepted into the study. The most important thing is to remember that you're always safe. And a recommendation is that whatever is coming up, that you allow it, that you don't have to like it, but you say, okay, rather than trying to run away from it. Once a volunteer is enrolled in the study, they're with us for the preparation, the psilocybin sessions, and the integration follow-ups after. I have been a guide for around 350 psilocybin sessions and then about 1,000 of the preparatory and integration meetings. All right. Okay, let me clear that up. It's really just about experiencing what comes up as psilocybin takes effect. part of this journey 
this world and things that matter to most people, family and all that, it, that wasn't even what it was about. They say anything mystical can't be explained. It's something like that. It's, 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 it's a feeling of such immense power that you can't even imagine. I've never felt anything like it before. It was about being in a place of infinite space and just being there. There's an experience of positive mood, sometimes open-heartedness, love, a transcendence of time and space, and then finally it's thought to be ineffable. People say, I can't describe that experience. In my mind, I said, okay, hold it. If I give myself over to you, can you promise me that I will be in at least as strong a shape as when I entered this room? And I felt a voice that I needed to heed. Do you think I would disrespect my own handiwork? This is the voice from on high saying, do you think I would disrespect my child? And I felt so beautiful. I felt like I have never felt before. My sense of being loved, of being worthy, of love, of being cared for, of being important to someone. Individuals in the study said it's the single most spiritually significant experience of their lives. About 70% say it's the, among the five most personally meaningful experiences of their lives. And you say, well, so what, what does that mean? You know, and, and initially I thought, I wonder if, if they don't have pretty dull lives. Um, but you no, know, people would say, you know, when my firstborn came into this world, I'll, I'll never forget that. And life has never been the same since. Or my father passed away. That was deeply moving to me. I'm different now in the world. And so, you know, it's kind of like that. The most glorious part of it was that it made me feel more comfortable with, with living, you know, because... Uh, you're not afraid of dying. Frankly, I'm just a laboratory scientist. And I wasn't prepared for that. From the memory of the transcendental state of consciousness, many people report less anxiety, less depression, less preoccupation with pain, closer interpersonal relationships, and perhaps most impressive they claim to have a loss of the fear of death. It recalibrates how they see death. 
It's been amazing hearing him talk about this idea of love. Many of them spoke about how nature itself is something like this substance called love. And having touched that, they've recalibrated it and shaped how they die differently. How many people here have read Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind? So um, Michael Pollan's in a great service and uh, making a bridge between those people who are psychedelically naive or have not tripped on, on, on mushrooms and other substances and building a bridge uh, of familiarity uh, to help people understand that these substances have benefit. Now, it's not um, a dangerous question for you to answer, but how many people in this room have not tripped on mushrooms? Can you raise your hand? Oh, my. Uh, I, I count maybe seven out of 300. Well, welcome to the tribe. Okay, um, I... I I, I'm, I'm going to go over about 10 minutes over, but I want to just go through the another um, la, la, uh, a lasting effect of tripping on mushrooms is a pro-environmental um, behavior and an understanding of the importance of the ecosystem. One feels connected. Uh, my research tomorrow, which I believe is paradigm shifting, and other people also uh, have said that, uh, is a direct consequence, I believe, of my tripping on mushrooms, and it has changed my mind. Um, so uh, truth be told, you'll see this tomorrow. In Silicon Valley, microdosing is uh, extremely popular. Uh, groups of coders are getting together to solve complex uh, computer cha challenges uh, in writing computer code uh, by taking doses of mushrooms, ma micro and macro, by the way. Uh, but my, microdosing, it, believes, it is believed by the coders, it gives them uh, a competitive edge uh, and new insights uh, into very complex algorithms uh, in creating shortcuts and new ways of being able to crunch data. An extraordinary, extraordinary uh, article published by Roland Griffiths and his team is recommending that psilocybin be moved from a Schedule One drug which putatively means that it has no medical benefit and a high for abuse, uh, potential for abuse to a Schedule 4, which is like asthma medicine, which is it, it, which basically, so this is, it's so safe. Uh, so the FDA is now looking at this, uh, removing it to a Schedule 4 state, um, and FDA researchers and scientists have said they've never seen a drug that had such a good safety profile with so uh, low abuse potential. For those who have not eaten psilocybin mushrooms, when you trip on a big dose of psilocybin mushrooms, the next day you look at the mushrooms and you go, no way. <laughs> I'm not going there for a while. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like you know, a cocaine addict who wants to snort you know, the, the next day. So anyhow, 
just announced in the past uh, past week, uh, USONA Corporation, uh, a nonprofit um, lead, uh, led by um, uh, Bill Linton, uh, it's an extraordinary individual. Uh, Eighty individuals are being recruited for a phase two trial for major de- depressive disorder, recruiting in the fall of 2019. Uh, extraordinarily interesting. So I'm going to zoom through these for the sake of time. But let's look at Azure Essence, Cyan Essence. And Azure Essence, you can see, is much larger than Slosopy Cyan Essence. Many of you know Slosopy Cyan Essence. It's the wavy-capped one. Uh, Azure Essence is much more robust. But I discovered something which is really counterintuitive. And I, I like going against the grain. It's just my nature. So I discovered how to make blue juice. You take fresh philosophy mushrooms and you chop them up. Very counterintuitive to chemists. I, I talked to several chemists about this, and they said they never would have thought of this. Is usually when you want to extract a, a substance from from a plant or a mushroom, you know, you use very intense solvents and accompanied by heat. You know, that tends to get out the, the uh, constituents a lot uh, better uh, uh, into solution. Uh, but I found that if you let ice cubes on chopped mushrooms slowly melt in a refrigerator at two degrees Celsius, 34 degrees, you end up extracting the psilocybin and psilocin into the water and not pulling out the polysaccharides and all this other stuff, and you end up with this beautiful blue fluid. And then you can put it into ice cube trays, make ice cubes, and and go to Burning Man, right? Okay, so I want you to know about another mushroom called lion's mane. <laughs> lion's mane has extraordinarily powerful nerve growth factors, herbicinones and aranaceans. Herbicinones come from the, the fruit bodies. Aranaceans come from the mycelium. Uh, these are some of the strongest nerve growth factors ever discovered. Two clinical studies showing improvement in mild cognitive uh, 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 deficits. There's an ongoing clinical study in California uh, that we have supplied with lion's mane mycelium uh, for Alzheimer's patients. Um, and lion's mane mushrooms um, have a significant effect on improving um, the ability of cognition in the elderly. Now, what lion's mane mushrooms do in the aranaceans is the active constituent. It's like aranaceans, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, so there's a bunch of them. The cyathane derivatives, extraordinarily expensive. Five milligrams cost $25,000. So the mushrooms are a much better and easier, you know, uh, uh, source for them than getting the pure substance. Um, so another example of a natural product is a lot more beneficial to people than trying to have a, a pharmacologically purified uh, individual molecule. And what the lion's mane constituents do is they cause a regeneration of myelin, which is the conductive sheath on the axons of nerves. And with Alzheimer's patients, you have a buildup of amyloid plaques. Now, there's a number of studies that have come out, and the studies that are most extraordinarily interesting are with mice. And it shows that with a group of mice that have been grown in the laboratory, they uh, do a controlled experiment with a maze and also a, a, y, a T-test. Basically, the T-test, they go down a corridor. To the left, they get food. To the right, there is no food. They figure out, go left, they'll get food. They inject them with a cyclopeptide that induces amyloid plaque formation and demyelination. 
it basically causes Alzheimer's-like symptoms and neuropathy. And so when they inject the mice and they're faced with the Y test or the T test, left or right, they then randomize. They don't remember which way to get the food as this Alzheimer's-like disease symptomology progresses. And demyelination occurs. Neurotransmission is interfered with. Amyloid plaques form. And then when they took those fully diseased mice and they started feeding them lion's mane mushrooms, the amyloid plaques were removed, remyelination occurred, and then, then when they put them in that T-test again, they re-remembered which way to go to find the food. Upon resecting the mice and looking at their brains versus the mice that were not given the lion's mane, they could clearly see, systologically, that the mice benefited uh, from taking the lion's mane. There's other tests, too, that won't get involved, but basically they were able to, through a behavior test and then through resection, to prove that behaviorally and also uh, through resection, they could see the, that the lion's mane mushrooms helped. So there's a number of lion's mane mushrooms. Hibiscimia biotis is one. So psilocybin costs $7,000 per gram. Wow. That's about $70, $70 for uh, a, like a one-gram dose of cubensis, you know, 10 milligrams. Um, so it's expensive. And you're in a clinical setting with all those doctors in a hospital, uh, you know, and they have to they step on that and multi- multiply the expenses. It, it, psilocybin treatment can, can become very expensive. So I came up with something. And before I show this, I'd like to ask the group here, the show of hands, how many people remember in the 60s and 70s and the 80s that you heard if you had a bad trip on psilocybin or, or LSD, if you took niacin, you would come down from a bad trip? How many people heard that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. About ten people raised their hand. It was very common knowledge in the 60s and 70s. Well, it turns out that there's no evidence of that. But it was, a, it was conventional wisdom that that was the case. And, but I think the opposite. Cisniacin doesn't counteract the effects of psilocybin. It actually enhances it. So I propose this a stacking formula for epigenetic neurogenesis. Stacking psilocybin, aranacines, and vitamin, and vitamin B3, niacin. Now, that was also means psilocybin mushrooms have uh, 1% psilocybin by weight, the natural form, the mushrooms, that's 10 milligrams. Uh, aranacines are very expensive, so the mushrooms are better. Nicotinic acid, it causes vitamin B3, causes uh, the red flushing. The reason why I think this formula is a, is a good one is the neurogenesis in the hippocampus that's been shown causes the proliferation of the nerve uh, tips. Aranaceans and lion maize mushrooms causes remyelination on the axons of the nerves. And the idea of neuropathy, many neuropathies present themselves as a deadening of the fingertips and the toes. You lose sensation. And so because niacin excites the nerve endings, you get a red flush. Why not stack these three so you can drive the neurogenic benefits of psilocybin and aranacines or the psilocybin mushrooms and the lion's mane mushrooms to the endpoints of the nervous system as a driving mechanism. Now, admittedly, the vascular system needs to be intact in order to bring these to the endpoints you know, of your fingers and your, and your toes. But I think this is well worth exploring. And so I think this is something that could be very helpful for microdosing so I'm showing you here a microdosing formula. At one millig- uh, 10 milligrams or one, one gram of psilocybin cubensis, you have liftoff. You can feel it. 
So we, I, I thought one tenth of a gram would be would be good, and most people don't feel anything at one tenth of a gram. But a Mary Prankster friend of mine, who are very, were very experienced, we did one tenth of a gram. It was a very potent strain, I, I admit. In about an hour and twenty minutes, we both looked at each other and go, "I can feel this," you know. But we were super sensitive and tuned into it. Most people, it's like the first time you smoke marijuana, you don't even know you're high. Um, but so I reduced it to one twentieth of a gram um, in, in this formula. But anyhow, one tenth to one twentieth of a gram of psilocybin cubensis, um, and then with um, two several grams of, uh, of lion's mane mushrooms and hundred to two hundred milligrams of niacin. Now, why the niacin is also good? It becomes like an antabuse. People, if they have this as microdosing over the counter, they're not, if you stack it with niacin, it's going to limit abuse because they try to take 20 times, uh, 20 capsules, they'll end up with such a horrific niacin flush. Uh, and so be so adversarial, they won't take it. And actually, there is already a drug um, that has been stacked with niacin for that very purpose. So I present to you as, as a, as a D. IY formula here uh, that, that people are experimenting with, and there's always several reports on the internet over the very, very positive results. So um, this is something I hope we have a clinical study in Canada uh, be funded in the next uh, two years, um, and so we'll see where it goes. But I think this makes a lot of sense. We're all going to suffer, suffer from dementia on some level. Uh, and think about the loss of the body intellect to our culture and to our economy. In fact, think about intelligence agencies. They have elders that are they're losing knowledge that are essential for national defense. It seems to me that our intelligence agencies would benefit by being more intelligent. <laughs> I, I await the counter-argument to, to that proposition. Anyhow, okay. So I just want to, um, so the other thing I want to point out, which I don't know of any other researchers besides these individuals, it was the low doses of psilocybin uh, with mice that extinguished the fear condition response, more so than the high, higher doses. So doses do make a difference. For a spiritual journey to fight depression, for, you know, for uh, in a clinical setting, for you know, a weekend or a few days and coming out a new person, you know, yes, right, I think so. But what about the steady state decline as you get older? Think about the Einsteins we're losing every day due to dementia. You know, what, what, what's the economic loss, the competitive loss of our society? This is something I think we can address. And if you can take microdoses to a level where it does not get you high, if the FDA is being petitioned to move it to a Schedule 4 at clinically high doses, wouldn't they think they'd be more favorable at one-tenth to one-twentieth of a dose stacked with niacin? I think so. So I would hope that this would be approved in the future as an over-the-counter, non-prescribed, nootropic vitamin that could help improve the body intellect and preserve the intellectual capital of our societies worldwide. Okay, I have three more slides here, I think. Or, and so here's a weird one. Here's a psilocybin mushroom, Gymnopolis luteofolius. Well, it grows on alder trees. It bruises bluish at the very base of the stem. 
Um, it's not a purple brown mushroom, but it's very difficult to identify. But I might as well show this to you. I didn't want to show it for years, but I'll tell you why, and you'll see why in a second. But this is just crazy. Okay, this is July 8th, uh, 2011, and it's just hard to believe that uh, Paul Stamps' boat will be growing a psychoactive mushroom, but it's true. I know it's not the best specimen right now, but this is Gymnopolis luteofolius. It is uh, unique to alder. It's a very rare species. In fact, most mycologists would not be able to identify it. I just happen to have a specialty in this area, and um, it is... Uh, it's so weird because my friend Clay here, hey Clay, hey. he said he found a mushroom going off of a boat and he brought it to me from your friend, right? At Harstein Island boat uh, launch. And it was also Gymnopolis luteofolius. So it begs the question now, is this mushroom indigenous to Northwest boats? Uh, <laughs> and I, I've never found this in the wild. I've seen it at a mycological society, but uh, I go figure. Now, I'm not going to pick it, so I guess I'm not breaking the law. <laughs> or am I breaking the law because it's, it's growing here and I know what it is. I don't know what to do. Uh, anyhow, how bizarre. Gymnopolis luteofolius on Stamus's boat, and we've had more than one sighting of this on this boat and more than one boat now, two boats. So go figure. So... <laughs> so... To be clear to any law enforcement, I sold the boat, okay? I didn't tell the people who bought the boat what was on the boat because I didn't, there wasn't any mushrooms on the boat at the time. So, Okay, so uh, where the science is still side, but it is straying into the bazaar, into the science fiction. When this article came out on cicadas, cicadas every 17 years, I grew up in Ohio, come out in huge quantities, and as they get old, they get a fuzzy butt. Well, it turns out that fuzzy butt is mycelium packed full of psilocybin. And the cicadas, when they come out from underground, as they get older, they most of them get this fuzzy butt. The mycelium actually rots off their genitalia. And the male cicadas, even though they don't have any genitals, then adopt feminized behavior to attract non-infected males. And so they seduce them with their dance so the males that are not infected will get uh, uh, close to the now feminized uh, genitalia-reduced males so they get infected with the spores so it alters the insect's behavior. So, wow. (laughs) Where is this going? It just speaks to the fact that the mycelium is in constant biomolecular communication with the ecosystem. It controls and adapts and influences animal behavior, insects and people being animals. And it does so in order to perpetuate itself. We know that the majority of psilocybe mushrooms are debris followers, the woodland ones, rare in the woods, but they are associated with human activities of building houses, chopping wood, the invention and use of beauty bark around buildings has caused a huge surge in psilocybin mushrooms, which were not seen in the 1950s and 60s until landscaping bark was being used around buildings. Some of the best places to find psilocybin mushrooms have been around courthouses, jails, 
other institutions of, of higher learning <laughs> around Apple and Google and headquarters and Microsoft. I mean, is this accidental, incidental, or is it directed evolution? And I present you the concept that these fungi are smart, far smarter. They are the elders. They go back millions of years. They're very clever in how they can seduce and entice us to propagate them. And maybe they are creating a change in consciousness necessary for us to save the, in, the ecosystems because it protects the plurality and the biodiversity of us all. And us being the prior, premier species that can inflict damage they're creating the greatest catastrophes on this planet. They're enlisting our help now at a time critical to cause uh, a, a paradigm shift in the evolution uh, of human consciousness. So here is a two-minute closer, and then I'm done. Mushroom mycelium represents rebirth, rejuvenation, regeneration. Fungi generate soil that gives life. The task that we face today is to understand the language of nature. My mission is to discover the language of nature of the fungal networks that communicate with the ecosystem. And I believe nature is intelligent. The fact that we lack the language skills to communicate with nature does not impugn the concept that nature is intelligent. It speaks to our inadequacy for communication. If we don't get our act together and come in commonality and understanding with the organisms that sustain us today, not only will we destroy those organisms, but we will destroy ourselves. We need to have a paradigm shift in our consciousness. What will it take to achieve that? If I die trying, and but I'm inadequate to the task to make a course change in the evolution of life on this planet, okay, I tried. The fact is, I tried. How many people are not trying? If you knew that every breath you took could save hundreds of lives into the future, had you walked down this path of knowledge, wouldn't you run down that path of knowledge as fast as you could? I believe nature is a force of good. Good is not only a concept, it is a spirit. And so hopefully the spirit of goodness will survive. Are you on the bus? Thank you very much. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Needless to say, when Paul asked the crowd if we were on the bus or off the bus, we all rose to our feet and cheered. And if you aren't familiar with that phrase, on the bus, you ought to look it up because it's still very important to many of us. 
I should let you know that on the program notes, I've also added links to Paul's books on Amazon and to his company, Fungi Perfecti, whose lion's mane capsules I can give an unqualified personal endorsement of. I think you really owe it to yourself to, at the very least, check out the Fungi Perfecti website. I guarantee that you're going to find it uh, to be a very interesting place to visit from time to time. Like you, uh, I could go on and on about how important psilocybin mushrooms have been to me. In fact, it was on a magic mushroom trip near the ruins at Palenque when I made the decision to quit my job and move to the coast. Had that not happened, well, you and I wouldn't be together here in cyberdelic space right now. And even though we aren't always aware of it, our friends the fungi are truly the wind under our wings. On many different levels, I think they're holding our world together. Like most people, uh, every once in a while I get what my mother used to call being down in the dumps, uh, which I personally believe is a much better way of saying it than saying I was depressed. To me, uh, depression indicates the use of pharmaceuticals, but down in the dumps is just something that we all have to live through every once in a while. However, these past few years, I've come across something that always lifts up my spirits. You see, where we live, on many mornings there are one or two yards along my walk where a few little mushrooms have sprung up, so I've begun talking to them. Not out loud, of course. <laughs> I am well aware what would happen to me if uh, somebody reported an old man standing on their lawn and talking out loud to the mushrooms. <laughs> I might be stoned a lot of the time, but I've never been that stoned. What I do, however, is I picture them in my mind and tell them how much I appreciate all that their species has done for us and for me in particular. And in my imaginary conversation with them, they suddenly appear in their ancient guise, and these old, old beings gently assure me that this too will pass, that there are both good times and difficult times ahead. However, I'm not to worry, because there can be no growth without a little discomfort and maybe even some pain. But they tell me to remember that these beautiful living beings will always have my back. They'll always be there for me, and, well, somehow that little imaginary conversation always makes me feel better. You might want to try it for yourself sometime. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>